BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free when i came into office i inherited a deal that president trump negotiated with the taliban under his agreement the taliban was at its strongest militarily since 2001 we were clear-eyed about the risks we plan for every contingency, but I always promise the American people that I will be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. I know there are concerns about why we did not begin evacuating Afghans civilians sooner. Part of the answer is some of the Afghans did not want to leave earlier. And part of it was because the Afghan government and its supporters discouraged us from organizing a mass exodus to avoid triggering, as they said, a crisis of confidence. I stand squarely behind my decision. On this episode of Newt's World, I'm going to take some time to talk about Afghanistan in context. I'm tempted to just spend an hour bashing President Biden, his total mishandling of this and the pathetic nature of his speech. But I don't think that's what we really need is a national conversation because we have big challenges. And we have to recognize that at a time when our southern border is wide open, at a time when worldwide television is carrying the message to every would-be terrorist on the planet, that the U.S. is backing down at a time when the Chinese and the Russians and the Venezuelans and the Cubans and others would like to make as much trouble for America as they can. But we have challenges beyond a speech by President Biden. And that we need to think about 
as a country, as a people. If we've invested 20 years in trying to change a country and 20 years in trying to defeat a local organization that's really based on the values of the 7th century, and we didn't succeed by definition, then there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into this. And frankly, as a former Speaker of the House, I think that the Congress, both House and Senate, both Democrat and Republican, should be laying out a very intensive and exhaustive review of both the intelligence community and the Pentagon and the State Department. I mean, if you go back and you look at some of the things that President Biden and his team said not very long ago, like weeks, and then you think about a lot of that was based on what people were telling him. He wasn't just making it up himself. And so you have to ask yourself, if they were really that confident two, three, four, five weeks ago, then I think you've got to ask, what's wrong with our system? Because we've had people now who've been in country since the fall of 2001. Our initial reaction was to send a relatively small number of special forces, but to back them up with huge amounts of air power. And the result was they did a devastatingly good job, which was actually captured in a book called The Harsh Soldiers. And it was quite funny. One of the major requirements for emergency logistics when they first went in was to get extra large pantyhose because they were doing so much riding that they were being rubbed raw. And they needed something to protect their legs. So it sounds weird, but I happened to be involved at the time. And it was literally true. It was one of the stories that was making the rounds at the time. But they did an amazing job of allying with our friends in the north who were anti-Taliban and collectively using air power and using on-the-ground intelligence and laser designation to basically destroy the Taliban's ability to fight the forces that have been arrayed against them. So let's talk about Afghanistan. Afghanistan, from some standpoint, really grew to prominence when the Soviets intervened to prop up a pro-Soviet leader in 1979. And Jimmy Carter went on television and in an interview admitted that for the first time he's been to think the Soviets weren't our friends because he was so surprised at the way that they had occupied and basically invaded Afghanistan. And at the time, Carter's reaction in part was a grain embargo against Russia, which actually hurt the American farmers more than the Russians, and also to boycott the Summer Olympics in Moscow, which cumulatively, the average American combined all that with the Iranian hostage crisis and decided that Carter really didn't quite know what he was doing. And it was a significant part of why he was defeated. Reagan came along, and of course, Reagan was a very staunch anti-communist. And Reagan understood that the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan was an enormous advantage. And I always thought this was odd in terms of what we ended up doing later, because it was quite clear that the Afghans have a very, very long history, probably going back at least to Alexander the Great, of throwing out foreigners, and that they were not intimidated by the Soviet Union. And remember, 
The Soviet Union was physically closer than we are to Afghanistan. The Soviet Union had a big military in 1980-81, and the Soviet Union was willing to be vastly more vicious than we would ever dream of. For example, as part of their effort to break the morale of the Afghan rebels, they would put tiny bombs inside children's toys and distribute them around the countryside, knowing that they were going to either kill or maim young Afghans who picked up the toys. I mean, it's the kind of stuff, you sort of understood that the Soviets would do it. But what was amazing was the Afghans just kept coming. They wouldn't back off. And we decided finally that we would get engaged on the side of the Afghan rebels who were called Mujahideen. The key thing we gave them was Stinger missiles. And the reason that mattered was that the Soviets, just like the Americans, were using air power and particularly using very large helicopters that were very heavily armored and very hard to knock down. And Stinger missiles, one shot, one kill. So the Stinger missile, in fact, suddenly gave the Afghans the tactical advantage and allowed them to use American technology to offset the Russians and ultimately broke the back of the Soviet will to fight. The withdrawal from Afghanistan was one of the first signs of the beginning of the end for the Soviet empire. That was a context in which people then tried to find a way to manage the chaos of Afghanistan. And it's important to remember that for most of Afghan history, you've had local regional centers with a very weak central government. And that's exactly what began to follow when the Soviets left, because the Taliban was the dominant single group, partially because the Taliban represents the Pashto, and the Pashto who are in the southern Kandahar region are the largest population group. So they had certain advantages just in terms of sheer population. But the fact was that the Taliban didn't control the country. No one controlled the country. There was an emerging effort. Taliban meant students in the Pashto language. They emerged in the early 1990s in northern Pakistan. And that's a very important part of the story that we have to come back to. The Taliban would not have survived if they had not been able to go into Pakistan as a sanctuary. And in fact, precisely as happened in the Vietnam War, where when things got too hot, the Viet Cong and later the North Vietnamese Army would go across the border into Laos and Cambodia, which turned out to be sanctuaries for psychological reasons. Similarly, Pakistan, which is a big country, it has nuclear weapons. It is focused very heavily on India and on the province of Kashmir, which is the opposite side of the country from Afghanistan. But it also has a secret police and intelligence component, which is very, very heavily focused on Islamism and really very sympathetic to the Taliban, which is why when we finally found bin Laden, he was in Pakistan. He wasn't just in Pakistan. He was in the city which has the Pakistani Command and General Staff College. And he was actually living within a mile of the Command and General Staff College. Now, nobody believed that bin Laden could have been hiding there without somebody in Pakistan knowing it. But he was being protected by the Pakistanis, which is why when we decided to go after him, we didn't do it as a joint U.S.-Pakistan operation because we knew that if they knew we were coming, they would have moved him. 
So you have the emergence of the Taliban, or students in the Pashto language, who begin to be organized, and they begin to, as the Soviets pull out, leaving a vacuum of power behind, the Taliban begins to capture significant parts of the country. They never capture all of it in this phase, but they capture significant parts. By 1996, they've captured the capital of Kabul, and they've overthrown the regime of President Rabbani, who was one of the founding fathers of the Afghan Mujahideen that had resisted the Soviets. So you begin to see a shift of power away from the anti-Soviet Afghans towards the pro-religious fanatic Afghans. By 1998, they controlled about 90% of Afghanistan, which was becoming a leading supplier of heroin, which is a major part of the Afghan economy, and which makes our work there much more complicated. They also, at that time, were gradually squeezing the various tribes in the north, but there was still some significant opposition to the Taliban, particularly in the northern provinces that were near the former Soviet areas like Tajikistan and Kazakhstan. The Taliban had gotten to know the Arabs because when the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan, they had particularly infuriated the Saudis. The Saudis were offended that the Soviets would invade a Muslim country, and there was a very substantial number of Saudis and others, but particularly Saudis, who went to help fight the Soviets. And so they actually formed the equivalent of a small brigade of foreigners who were quite prepared to fight. And as a result, the Taliban had a sympathetic attitude towards these foreigners. And once the Soviets had collapsed, the very same foreigners who were against the Soviets in Afghanistan were against the Americans on the Arabian Peninsula. In their view, to have Americans who are infidels on the holiest areas of Islam was simply unacceptable, undermined their respect for the Saudi monarchy, and led them to want to fight the Americans. So combine that with what had been a largely Egyptian-developed Muslim Brotherhood approach, which also wanted to fight the Europeans and the Americans. And as the Soviets disappear, which, of course, by December of 1991, they have literally disappeared, in the vacuum, you begin to get a transition towards a willingness to take on the Americans and a belief, and this was said fairly often, that, look, we defeated the Soviets. They were the second most powerful country in the world. Of course we can defeat the Americans. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. 
That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. And so there was a certain kind of pride, a hubris, if you will. And there were bombings. There were attacks in Africa in particular where two American embassies were bombed. There was a clear effort on the part of organizations like al-Qaeda, which was largely Arab, but deeply fundamentalist, and again, quite happy to live in the 7th century, to really engage in war against the West and particularly against America. And they were helped clandestinely by the Iranians. I mean, I think there's no question nowadays that the Iranians were a major part of supporting al-Qaeda, in some cases allowing them to come to Iran for hospitalization if they were sick, in other cases allowing them to come to Iran to rest and recuperate. So there were a lot of interesting relationships. Well, the Taliban was part of that. The Taliban attitude was that, you know, these are our friends, these are our allies. We ourselves don't want to go pick a fight. But if they want to go pick a fight, as good hosts, we're not going to kick our guests out. And this became a very tense position when you got into the attack on 9-11. And remember, the attack on 9-11 is Saudis. It's not Afghans. It's not even Iranians. I mean, the logical people for us to focus on. These were people from the Saudi Arabian system, and they were as much anti the Saudi monarchy as they were anti the United States. They pulled off what we still today, I think, underestimate as an absolutely brilliant 
both tactical and strategic strike. As we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, it would really be helpful to America and helpful to our system to recognize that this was an amazing achievement. You had a very small number of people using commercial airliners, exactly as Tom Clancy had written about in one of his novels. And the amount of damage they did, the number of people they killed, the degree to which that then triggered their strategic goal, which was to suck the United States into the Middle East. They wanted the Americans to come into the Middle East because they thought they could kill them more easily, and they thought that a part of their strategy for destroying American civilization was to so debilitate it both financially and in human lives that, in fact, the Americans couldn't sustain it. Well, President Bush responded to 9-11 with great intense militancy in the first phase. We sent troops in. We sent combat power in very real ways in terms of air power. And we built a tremendous amount of intelligence capability. And in a very short time, the Taliban collapsed. By October 7th, we were in Afghanistan launching attacks. And by the first week of December, the Taliban regime had collapsed. So at the end of 2001, things looked pretty good. And then things start to get muddier. April 17th of 2002, President George W. Bush calls for a Marshall Plan for Afghanistan. Now, I personally believe, and at the time I was working with people like Richard Starr at Johns Hopkins on what he called his 18-wheeler theory, which was that you wanted to build roads north and south, open up the stands, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and have a huge flow of commerce through Afghanistan, which would modernize the country, bring it into the 21st century, etc. And had we followed through on that kind of a Marshall Plan, you know, it might have been a very different world. The fact was most of the Afghan tribes did not want to be opened up. I mean, they weren't stupid. They understood that if we were successful in building these roads, that their way of life was going to collapse. And so there was great resistance to doing this, including a fair amount of fighting. We sent in some National Guard units. We had some contracts with civilian contractors. But then, in what may have been a fatal mistake, on March 20th of 2003, we invaded Iraq. And the reason that matters is we diverted military resources and we diverted senior leadership attention away from Afghanistan. We were not prepared to build up the American military enough to wage two fights simultaneously. We weren't prepared to invest intellectually in how to do it. And so in many ways, Afghanistan suddenly went from the front burner to the back burner and became less and less relevant. And we didn't have a theory. All wars start with a theory. I mean, what is it you think you're going to do in order to get your opponent to do what you want? We didn't really have a very good theory We'd come out of Vietnam without really understanding how to fight that kind of war. We didn't like fighting those kind of wars. And so we're in Afghanistan. We have wonderful, brilliant, amazingly courageous soldiers, sailors, Marines, Air Force, and Coast Guard. But at the top, they don't have a structured thought for how to win. And that began to be a problem. We could gradually build an Afghan government, and the truth is we did. We could recruit lots of other countries to help us. And the truth is, we did. 
NATO, in fact, stepped up to the plate. A lot of countries sent various forces. They sent an ability to help organize the country, an ability to, if you look at Kabul today compared to Kabul 25 years ago, it's amazingly more modern. We had a very substantial effort to liberate women, and it was working. We had women serving in parliament. We had women serving as mayors. In fact, there's a tragic interview today with a woman mayor who fully expects to be killed by the Taliban because she dresses in a Western way. She's not going to back down. And whether or not they'll tolerate her, I think, is very, very dubious. Remember that the Taliban at its peak did not allow music. It didn't allow women to appear in public without their husband or some male who could escort them. You're talking here about a reversion. We had literally had a strategy to help bring women from the 7th century to the 21st century, and now you're about to see a terrible move in the opposite direction. And I felt this particularly because when my wife Costa was the ambassador to the Vatican, she hosted a conference on religious liberty, and we had a woman from Iraq, a Yazidi, and the Yazidi are a heretical form who attract the hatred of the kind of fundamentalist Islamists that we were fighting. And the ISIS warriors would seize the women and basically turn them into slaves and share them around and use them sexually and saw the Yazidi as people to be destroyed. Well, I think there's a certain amount of desire built into the average Taliban. Now, they are currently saying good things. Apparently, they're Taliban spokesperson who has come back from the time he'd spent in the Persian Gulf is explaining that they really want women to have a role and that they have no intention of suppressing them. On the other hand, the word on the street is that their idea of modernization, they've moved up from 10-year-old girls to 15-year-old girls, but they reserve the right to tell any woman or girl 15 to 40 that they have to marry a Taliban warrior. How that plays out, we don't know yet but it would be very unlikely that the Taliban would suddenly decide that they really were all in favor of women having full rights. So I think there's likely to be a huge wrenching period. They have always attacked women's schools. They've always tried to burn them down. And there's a really deep sense of hatred for any kind of effort to create a modern system that involves women. So that's the context in which we got to where we are. We had built over an 18-, 19-year period, a very strong military. We had put a huge amount of resources into it. We had advisors. We had a very sophisticated intelligence community. We had used air power brilliantly. And the fact is that we had basically fought to a draw. If we were not prepared to go into Pakistan and we were prepared to allow the Taliban to have Pakistan as a sanctuary, it was very unlikely that we could defeat the Taliban permanently, because they would always be able to pull back and spend time rebuilding, retraining. On the other hand, as long as we were prepared to keep a very small number of people running the intelligence community, making sure that Bagram Air Force Base was available and useful, and applying air power with enormous power, enormous provision, and in as much as we needed, it was very unlikely that the Taliban would be capable of winning the war. So there was, in fact, I think, a balance of power that had developed. 
And over time, that balance of power was allowing businesses, and women in particular, to develop greater and greater prosperity, to develop greater and greater freedom, to develop more and more cohesion. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Now, there were two core problems in the middle of all this. Remembering that Afghanistan is not a singular country, that there are different languages, there are different tribal relationships, there are different networks of leadership. All of that's true, and all of that makes it much more complicated. The other two things that makes it more complicated are the degree to which this is a country which generates a huge amount of its total resources from the sale of heroin, 
particularly into Western Europe. And second, that corruption has been the norm for virtually all of modern Afghan life. It's not that corruption is a crime in the American sense. It's just that it's sort of what one does. And if you want me to do something for you, I expect you to give me a sort of a gift. You might think of it as the way we would tip the bellman at, at a hotel, the way we might tip the bartender at a local bar or the waitress or waiter. Well, you know, that goes all the way up to the president of Afghanistan. And it's just part of the way they operated. As somebody once said, they had really low salaries because the expectation was that they would make all the money outside of the salaried system. And that made it much harder to build the kind of resilient system that we favored. My guess is that it would have taken at least 20 more years to have begun to stabilize a modern Afghanistan in a 21st century rather than 7th century model, but that it could have been done. My guess is, and these are all guesses, that the process could have been sustained if, in fact, we had continued what was happening for the last 14 months. We'd suffered no combat casualties. We had almost an agreement with the Taliban that they wouldn't kill Americans, and we would not use our air power to its fullest extreme. And so there was sort of an armed tension in which neither side went all out. Trump had approached all of this with a very clear desire to get out, but to get out in a principled way, and had made very clear to the Taliban that if they did certain things, including targeting Americans, that we would then reserve the right to use massive air power, not a little bit, massive air power, to annihilate them, and that we'd go after them. And there were some hints that Pakistan would no longer be a sanctuary. So there was a sort of balance of fear and a sense that the system was gradually stabilizing. Cities were being built. Prosperity was occurring. Girls were being educated. But on the left, there was almost no understanding of any of this. It's really quite remarkable. The unwillingness of people on the left to understand the role that violence plays in making history and the role that violence plays in third world countries. I mean, if you go see the movie Black Hawk Down, for example, or you see the movie 13 Hours, you get some notion of how challenging it is when you're up against opponents who are willing to die and you're up against opponents who are enthusiastic about trying to kill you. So for some reason, we don't fully understand why, and it's something Congress, I think, should hold hearings on, the Biden administration and the president himself made the decision that they were going to get out and that symbolically they were going to get out before 9-11 so that they'd be able to say on the 20th anniversary that President Bush got us in, President Obama tried to manage it, President Trump failed to stop it, but here was Joe Biden, the man who ended the war in Afghanistan. The problem for the left was captured by Trotsky during the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War when he said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. The fact is, when you are dealing with an ally who knows that they are dependent on you, the minute they believe you're going to cut and run, they disintegrate. Now, that doesn't mean they would have disintegrated if you had stayed. We saw this in Vietnam 
where the South Vietnamese Army did a fine job of standing up to and defeating the North Vietnamese Army as long as they had American air power and American intelligence. So the intelligence would tell us what to target, the air power would take out the North Vietnamese, and the South Vietnamese Army could then defeat them. And when the North made the mistake of coming across the border with huge forces, President Nixon launched the biggest air campaign of the Vietnam War, and within a matter of two weeks, the South Vietnamese Army, aided by American air power, had broken the back of the North Vietnamese offensive. However, by 1975, when the elections had put in office people who were determined to get out of Vietnam, when the next great offensive occurred, we would not provide air power. We did not provide resources. The South Vietnamese figured out pretty rapidly they were going to lose. And once you think you're going to lose, panic sets in. Well, what Biden did by the very way that he engaged in all this is he maximized the likelihood of panic And it's now very clear from all the things we're seeing on television that they were totally unprepared for what was going to happen. In fact, you can go back to Biden's earlier press conference and his answers where presumably he was sincere in saying that he thought that the Afghan army was bigger, better trained, better equipped, and that it would defeat the Taliban. And he's very clear about this. And he says explicitly, you're not going to see helicopters leaving the embassy like, like Saigon. Now, Biden was already a U.S. senator by the time the helicopters were leaving the embassy in Saigon. So he's lived through all of this. And it's very sobering. And I had almost the feeling that Biden was sitting up there at Camp David not watching television, not seeing what was happening writing a speech that was fine as speeches go, but had no relation to reality. I mean, he says at one point that the Afghans wouldn't fight. Well, 66,000 Afghans died fighting on our side as our allies. 30 times as many Afghans died on our side as Americans. So to insult them and insult their families and their relatives and say they wouldn't fight, you had to wonder where did this stuff come from? And my guess is it came from some junior speechwriter who had no idea what he or she was talking about. I thought the speech was generally a disgrace. He says, you know, the buck stops with me, which is the old Harry Truman line, but he doesn't mean it. He promptly blames Donald Trump. He blames the Afghan army. He blames the Afghan people. He blames the Afghan government. It turned out it was everybody but him. I mean, pretty pathetic, frankly. He then says that we're going to continue to make the central focus of our administration human rights. How you could say that while you were abandoning the women of Afghanistan to a system that wants them to live in a 7th century model. I just wonder how these guys can look in the mirror because what he was saying was the exact opposite of what they're doing. They're abandoning these people. And it's pretty clear that they're abandoning them. So I think this is a tragic moment. I think Afghanistan was always going to be very, very hard. I think that the return of the Taliban the return with them of all of their various terrorist allies, the existence of a very porous southern border, the rise of morale among the anti-Americans, all anti-Americans. The Cubans are happier, the Venezuelans are happier, the Chinese are happier, the Russians are happier, the Iranians are happier. I mean, you show me an anti-American group, I'll show you a group that's celebrating this week. And on the other hand, the rise of fear 
among American allies, whether they're Japan, Korea, the Philippines, Taiwan, you name it, watching the total failure of this administration and the total failure of the American military and intelligence communities, if you're relying on the U.S. to survive, you're going to have a very long, hard week trying to think through what to do now that you've seen how really, truly inadequate our current system is. So I just wanted to share this strategic overview of where we're at and move beyond just the usual Biden bashing and the usual short-term view of the tragedy pictures of the airfield. I'll close with this thought. It ain't going away. It's the nature of history. We still have 28,000 troops in Korea. We still have a deep interest in Taiwan. We still have troops in Germany. Sooner or later, we're going to discover that you can't walk off from Afghanistan without some Afghans deciding to come visit. And then we'll face a whole new set of challenges. And my fear is that we don't have the energy, we don't have the drive, we don't have the moral leadership to take the Pentagon and take the intelligence community and the State Department and really thoroughly investigate why they were not able to win after 20 years. I think that this is a defeat. I think it's a defeat that could be a moment of educating us, or it could be a defeat that we just hide from and pretend everything's okay until we have another even bigger defeat. But thank you for giving me a chance to share with you things I've thought about and experienced. I was a member of Congress, freshman member, when the Russians first invaded Afghanistan. And I have followed this for a long time, and I was just deeply, deeply sorry the last few days. News World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.